BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Welcome to another episode of the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with over 5 million downloads and listeners just like you in over 100 countries. I'm your co-host, Austin Fable, and today we've got an incredible guest on the show who's been with us in the past, Annie Duke. We dig into a ton of great information, including how to think about luck, the hidden information in any decision you may make, and how uncertainty is actually the key to making good decisions. But before we dig in, are you enjoying the show and the content we put out each week for you? If so, there are two incredibly easy yet tremendously impactful things you can do for Matt and I. First, leave us a quick five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It helps other listeners like you find the show so that we can reach more people with this great knowledge. Next, Go to our homepage at www.successpodcast.com and sign up for our email list today. Our subscribers are the first to know about all the comings and goings of the show, but also you have access to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. Specifically, when you sign up, you're going to get our free course that we spent a ton of time on called, fittingly, How to Make Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. But are you on the go? Maybe you're working out, driving in the car? Well, good for you. Sign up for our email list, but just by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, and you'll be signed up today. If you are driving, do not text while drive. Pull over and send the text, just to be clear. If you haven't already checked out last week's episode with David Kidder, we dig into what moments of disruption can mean for anyone and how to be sure when making any business decision. On this episode, we interview an incredible guest, Annie Duke, and we talk about decision-making on many, many levels. A little bit about Annie. Annie Duke is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space. Annie's latest book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, is available now wherever books are sold. 
Her previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. As a former professional poker player, Annie won more than $4 million in tournament poker before retiring from the game in 2012. Prior to becoming a professional player, though, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. We had a great conversation. Annie, as I mentioned, is a repeat guest. She's always great to have on the show. Her insights are incredible. And without further ado, here's our interview with Annie Duke. Annie, welcome back to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, we're really excited to have you back on the show. Austin, uh, I'm sure you're excited to have Annie back on as well. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on, Annie. I wasn't uh, on the mic when you came on for the first run, so super excited to dig in with you, especially in light of everything going on in the world and the new book, of course. Well, I'm, I'm happy that you've been allowed to have a voice to be able to, <laughs> to, be able to chat. I'm excited to be. I'm excited that this is going to be like a real conversation. This is, this is good. I love it. I love it. Yeah, we're we're super pumped. So I mean, let's to to kind of jump in and and start out. I mean, I think I said this in our last conversation too, but I mean, for me, Thinking in Bets was it, probably one of my favorite books I've read in the last 3 or 4 years and I mean, I'm an amateur poker player, not very good, but but I like to play and I've learned a tremendous amount about life and decision making from poker. And I've recommended that book to half dozen people or more just about this is a great framework for thinking through decision making. So how did you go from from that to your your new project and really focusing even more on how we can make better decisions? Kind of the natural evolution of the way that I think about decision making. I, I think you can see this in, in the relationship between the two books. So I, I started off my life strictly as an academic, doing my PhD work at UPenn. Then I transitioned into poker and was really deep and focused into poker. And then around 2002, I started thinking in this very explicit way about the way that poker and cognitive science sort of can have a really interesting conversation with each other, where there's all this amazing work in cognitive science about like, how do you learn? How do you make a good decision? Cognitive bias, what, what are the errors that we, where we go wrong? And then poker is is really this sort of high stakes, really fast decision making environment in which all of the the science is is you know being brought to bear you know sort of at that table, sort of both sides of the issue, which is what are the ways in which the, that kind of environment causes your decision making to go wrong that you that you would also see in the science, but then also something that I felt was maybe a little bit lacking in the science, which was how would you actually solve for some of these things? Because at poker, if you don't solve for them, you go broke. There's, there, there's an immediate consequence to it. You, you just lose your chips. So I started thinking about how those speak to each other. And then that really is what resulted in Thinking in Bats, which was this book that was a little bit of how, but lots of why, about why is uncertainty so important? Why is thinking about luck and hidden information so incredibly important to creating a good decision process. What does that mean about how do we actually learn from experience? How do we understand what the outcomes of our decisions actually mean when you could lose because you played poorly or you could lose because you played quite well? It, you know, if you got unlucky or vice versa, you could win because you played really well, or maybe you could win because you played really poorly. 
And it was, you know, I was just realized it was very hard to work backwards and started thinking about the solutions that, that, that poker really offers you to that a little bit. So lots of why about uncertainty. Let's really think about uncertainty, why you need to pay attention to it. Then a little bit of how would you actually solve for this and, and create a good decision process. So after I had written that book, I just felt like I really wanted to ground these ideas much more and offer somebody a book that would actually walk them through how do you think about learning in a better way? How do you use the feedback that the world gives you in a way that can actually help you to learn better? How, what does a good decision process look like? How do you figure out when you should take a lot of time with a decision or when you can kind of punt it and go fast? And then the last piece of the book is really just how do you think about the conversations that you're having with people in order to really help advance your learning as well as theirs? Because this, this was a really big issue in poker was that a lot of the work that you were doing as a poker player was talking to other great poker players and learning how to have those conversations, which is actually not natural in a way that could actually help you to learn and sort of overcome these cognitive biases and these interferences in learning is actually really important. So I actually devote a lot of time. So I think about, you know, thinking in bets is like a little bit of a why in explaining this conversation between poker and cognitive science. And then this book is just how do you actually do it? Like, let's really get down to brass tacks and figure out how to ground it. I love that. I think it's such a great framework. And and I, I definitely want to dig into this notion of how do we create almost a shared framework or a shared vocabulary to explore these concepts amongst people who want to make better decisions or people who want to improve their thinking. But, but before we even jump into that, you touched on something a minute ago that to me is such a critical insight, which, which longtime listeners have heard me say this both in your previous interview and many other interviews is like poker is such a, is such an incredible crucible for forcing good decision-making because if you don't learn how to make better decisions and assess your own decision making, you go broke. And and that's a very it's a very unforgiving game. And that's why it's such a beautiful teacher. But to me, that that lesson that you can make a bad decision and have a good outcome, I see that pattern play out so much in real life where people have an absolutely terrible decision making process and they get rewarded for it. And it really creates a cascade of really behavior that is extremely either risky or they just don't understand what they're actually doing. I mean, there's, there's so many manifestations of that. And to me that, you know, that you, you touched on that idea of how luck can really impact our decisions and we don't often realize it. And to me, that's such an important concept. So I'm so happy you brought that up. I mean, obviously what you're talking about is it sort of expresses itself in survivorship bias, right? Like all, all the, the books are written by people who just happen to have succeeded not clear that they had a good process, right? But what you said, I think, is you're really kind of hitting the point home of why I circle back to that topic a little bit. So what I found was that after thinking of bets, of course, it, in that book, I'm, I'm talking about that, you know, outcome quality and decision quality are not correlated at one. So they're related to each other, but that relationship is really going to express over the long run, over like, you know, 10,000 coin flips rather than for any particular outcome that you might observe, that that's not going to be particularly good signal for a decision quality 
you have to be doing something that's skilled, but also where they're really the judgments aren't subjective, meaning that you have really perfect information, lots of information with very little influence of luck. So kind of the difference between chess and poker, right? In terms of that relationship between outcomes and decisions. If I lose at chess, I know it's because I made bad decisions. If I win at chess, I know it's because I made good ones. Not so in poker and not so in life. So in life, even the simplest decisions like going through a traffic light are fraught with lots of hidden information and lots of luck. So when I go through a green light, I don't know what cars are coming in the other direction. I don't know if those drivers are drunk. I don't know if their cars are in repair. And so what happens is that I can go through a green light and get in an accident, or I could go through a green light and get through fine, you know, and then we could do the flip side of going through a red light. Now, the reason why what you said is really insightful is that, so I I talk about this relationship and I can't tell you how many people after reading Thinking Bets came up to me and said, Annie, I'm so happy that I read that book because I've really been beating myself up for these bad outcomes that I thought were my fault. And what I realized from that book is that, oh, a lot of bad outcomes are probably pretty good decisions. It's just bad luck. And I I was a little horrified. that I had not expressed myself clearly enough to let people know that, yes, while that is sometimes true, that the opposing concept must be true as well. That a lot of times when you have really good outcomes, it's actually the result of quite a poor decision process. And I feel like the one side of the equation got expressed, or at least that's what people took out of the book, which of course is completely on me, but the other side of the equation didn't get expressed. So essentially, What I felt like happened was people said, oh, you know, there's this disconnection between outcome quality and decision quality. So this is going to get me sort of a way out of my bad decisions because I I can sort of see that that this could be due to luck. So one of the arguments I really push in the first part of this book is that you have to be thinking about all four quadrants when it comes to the relationship between decision quality and outcome quality. So you can have, you know, what I call earned rewards, which is a good decision, good outcome. You can have bad luck, which would be good decision, bad outcome. You can have good luck, which would be bad decision, good outcome. And then you can have what I consider just desserts, which is you you made a bad decision, you got a bad outcome. And I, and I think the problem is that we don't actually explore those four quadrants equally. So what I try to push for in this book is pay a lot of attention to the good outcomes. Really spend your time in there because you want to know when it wasn't the result of a good process and you must explore that. But even more importantly, even if you think it was the result of a good decision, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a better decision to be had. So we don't want to sort of rest on our laurels. You know, I made a pretty good decision. I got a pretty good outcome. So I'm just going to sort of leave that and not examine it. As I kind of tried to think about, well, why is it that we're not doing that? I thought about it sort of in this way, and you can tell me whether this resonates with you. If you have a bad outcome, you're already kind of in psychological pain because you're sad because things didn't go your way. So if you look at the bad outcomes, either you, you may discover it was due to a bad decision, at which point you're still sad, but you may discover that it was due to bad luck, at which point you all of a sudden become happy. So you can't really lose anything by looking at the bad decisions because, because you either stay in the same state you were already, which is sad, or you can get happy. 
But if we look at the other side of the equation and we're really examining in a real way our good outcomes, in some sense, you can only lose to it, at least in the short run, not in the long run, but in the short run, in the sense that you're feeling pretty good about yourself, stuff went your way. You closed the sale, your portfolio increased in value. You won the poker hand. Like we could go through any examples and I'm feeling pretty good because I have a good outcome. Now, what happens when I examine it? Well, I may find that I made a really great decision. So, well, okay, I'm already still happy. That didn't really change my state very much. But if I find out it was actually quite a bad process that produced that good outcome, now all of a sudden I I feel bad. So I'm losing to that exploration in the short run. Now, obviously in the long run, it's good because that's how you get better at things. And then you don't repeat the same process over and over again, wondering why it isn't going right again. But I think that that's why we're sort of loath to be actually looking at our wins and trying to figure out if we could have done better. Yeah, that's such a great point. And it's funny, I wouldn't say it was necessarily the way that you frame things and thinking in bets that cause that confusion. I think it's really just the human brain and the fact that our our biases always try to skew our perception of events towards whatever shines the most favorable light on us. And especially for somebody who's more of a newer initiate into the field of decision making and hasn't really spent a lot of time thinking about and understanding how your brain can short circuit and deceive you and and trick you into thinking that you're smarter than you are and that you're you're right more often than you are it's really easy to fall for that trap of finding an easy outlet that says oh i just failed because of bad luck not because of bad decisions when as you said really the vein that's that you can mine really richly is well what about the good outcomes that happened as a result of poor process and how can you learn from those mistakes and improve your your thinking and your and your decision making. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I generally agree, except that the, the one thing that I would add is that I, I wrote in the book about how we tend to want to shine a favorable light on ourselves. So I feel like I more than most, it, had I really thought about it, I had a chance to recognize the way that that might be read. So, you know, maybe I couldn't, maybe I explained it pretty clearly and people are coming away with something just because of human nature that I wasn't saying maybe I could have said it better. At any rate, the good news is that I had an opportunity to say it better this time, I think. And I've got specific exercises in this book that really have you focusing on good outcomes and trying to make some exploration about that. And one of the things just to sort of add to what you said is, it's not just that you may find out that you had bad process. You may find out that you had quite good process, but you would want to understand, you know, process as a whole generally isn't good. There's some good parts of the process and some poor parts of the process. So First of all, you'd want to identify, sort of separate that stuff out. But the other thing is that, you know, as I like in poker, you can you can play a hand, have positive expected value. In other words, you're expected to win given the way that you're playing. But that doesn't mean that you're maximizing your expected value. You could have a completely winning strategy, but there's another winning strategy that would win even more that's available to you. But because you're sort of settling in and you don't want to sort of feel like you made the second best choice, which in the short run would feel bad, you don't actually discover that there's a better choice above that because it's basically almost never that you would be on the what we would call the primary line of play, meaning like the absolute best decision if you had perfect knowledge and were, you know, the ideal decision maker on earth, you're usually somewhere below that. And so we should always sort of have that North Star that we're striving for. And that means that we have to be acknowledging that 
we may have a winning strategy, but that doesn't mean it's the best one. Annie, I want to circle back real quick and talk about this idea of decision making and you know how the right decision can possibly have a, a bad outcome and how a poor decision can have a good outcome, especially as it as it pertains to us in the world we find ourselves in today. You know, as of recording this, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's a lot of things going on where people are deciding whether or not they need to send kids back to school, how we do virtual learning. And, and in listening to the conversation thus far, it made me think, you know, I've got I've got several friends who are making kind of the quote unquote, maybe bad decision, right? They're going out to bars, the second restrictions get lifted, they're in rooms with hundreds of people, but they're all fine, healthy, thriving, no big deal. On the other hand, I've got friends of friends of mine who were super careful, had some pre-existing conditions, did not want to go out, wore masks everywhere, and maybe, you know, in a moment had to go to the store to get something, wore a mask, went, and then they get a test and they're positive. How do we go about kind of assessing the risk in the world that we live in today and, and how we can make the best decisions when it comes to following something like whether or not we're going to go out and be social, whether we follow certain regulations and things kind of that pertain to the pandemic world we're in now. Oh, that's such a, that's such a great question, Austin. So let me just say that while, while the pandemic is certainly unusual, the uncertainty is actually relatively similar to the type of uncertainty that you might experience normally. So let me just kind of explain what I mean by that. It's, it's very clear when it comes to coronavirus that there's tons of luck involved. I, I mean, the right bat had to meet the right human for one thing. And <laughs> right. Like, and, yeah, the beginning of it all. Right. And then as you just pointed out about your friends, it's like if you go to the grocery store, there's just a lot of luck involved, whether you sort of walk through the aerosols of somebody who has it or whether you don't like at that moment that you go to the store, if 3% of the people in your area are positive, how many people in that grocery store on that particular instance are going to be positive, right? So if 3% of people are positive, it doesn't mean 3% of people in the store are positive. So do you actually just like run across somebody who is positive or not? Uh, On the flip side, if you go to a bar, do you end up sitting next to somebody who has it or who doesn't? Like these are, these are a lot sort of matters of luck, right? Then there's also the problem of, of course, the information landscape is shifting very quickly. So the things that we thought we knew about the virus in March are very different than the things we know today, just like the aerosols. So in March, we thought it was spread through respiratory droplets. Now we know that it can be aerosolized, so it can be sitting in the air. We know that now that there's a big difference between you die or you live, and there's a whole world in between of being sick for a very long time or or longer-term damage to your organ systems, right? So we don't want to think about that as a dichotomy anymore. But this is all information that we're collecting as we go along. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of shifting right now about how contagious children are, for example, and that seems to change every single day. So we can really feel the uncertainty so much right now. And what I've heard people say is, well, you know, I should hold off on making any decisions at all until the environment goes back to being stable. So the first thing that I want to say about that is what? What do you mean? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Back to being stable. I don't really know what that means. So while this uncertainty is really heightened, it doesn't mean that there isn't tons of uncertainty at other times. And and what I try to say to people just to make the point is, I just say, do you own stocks and bonds in your portfolio at the same time? And they'll always say yes. And I say, well, then you're admitting that the the world is a little bit more coronavirus like in its environment than 
than you would like to think. That's a lot of the stuff that has to do with illusion of control, you know, overconfidence, overplacement, those kinds of things are all coming from this status quo bias, are coming from this illusion that there's less uncertainty than there actually is. So I just want to say, like, you know, obviously this is a complete tragedy that's unfolding, you know, right before us, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned from how to make good decisions when it comes to this environment that you can take out of it into your normal decision-making environment. So I'll just throw a couple out to you. When there's a lot of uncertainty, you should always prioritize the more reversible decision. So we can think about this from a logical standpoint. If we know that information is shifting all the time, so we're going to learn new things in the future. And if we know that our decisions are only as good as the inputs, the information that goes into our decision, then what we can recognize is that while we might have to decide now, should we send our kids to school, should we not, for example, that sometime after we've made that decision, there's probably going to be new information that reveals itself to us. And some of that information may make us wish that we had chosen something else to do. So and when we're weighing two options or more, when we recognize a lot of uncertainty, we want to prioritize reversibility. So like if we think about the school decision, how could we prioritize reversibility? And I'm not saying I have answers to this question. I'm just giving a framework for thinking about it. Sure, sure. So one is, is it easier to send people to school and then reverse and get them online than it is to have kids online and then reverse and send them to school? And whichever one of those is easier, you would probably want to prioritize that. We can also think about that in terms of reversibility of consequences. So if kids are at home, for example, we know that they will have learning loss. So we could think about how reversible is the learning loss versus if kids are on, in school, they may get their grandparents sick, the, mm -hmm. who may die. They may get the teachers sick. There may be long-term damage from coronavirus, right? Those kinds of things that, that feel like they would be less reversible than the learning loss. So uh, again, I'm not saying I have the answers to this, but that's kind of how we want to be thinking about decisions. Number one is how can we be prioritizing reversibility? The second thing is how can we sort of make the lowest impact decision possible, meaning something that's not going to impact us in the long run, in order specifically to collect information? So again, it, it, as a school, if we're thinking about the school problem, what I might say is there's a couple ways that I could sort of think about how could I do some low impact things first. One might be it appears that the data looks better for under 10 year olds than kids who are older than 10. So I could send elementary school kids back where I know that the impact of that is likely to be less because it seems like they don't spread it like adults. Their parents are generally going to be younger. So that feels like there's less risk there. So, so less of an impact. And even their grandparents are going to tend to be younger. So I could say, well, let, let's send the little kids back and then wait and see on the rest because then we can collect information about kind of what's happening at the elementary level. Another possible solution would be to say, well, there's a lot of school districts who are going to be going back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. 
Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So why don't we wait a second? We'll start off online. And then we'll use the fact that other school districts are going back in order to improve our information situation because we're lacking information. And that way we can collect that information and see how it goes for those school districts prior to having to make the decision. So so that would be saying we're going to start online and we're going to wait and see. That would be another way that you could do it. A third thing that you can think about is exercising options in parallel. So that would be an example of saying to parents, if you want to keep your kids at home, that's fine. And, and we're going to have a really robust online learning system. But also, if you want to send your kids to school, that's fine. And we'll actually try those two things in parallel. So that would be another thing that you could do. There's all sorts of ways that you can implement this outside of coronavirus in terms of mm. thinking about that. But those would be like three of the things that you should be really thinking about. So there's how quittable or how reversible is the decision? What are the low impact things that I can do that will give me the information I need need before making the high impact decision or at least to improve the quality of that as the information is shifting? And can I do anything in parallel? So that would be stocks and bonds as a way to exercise options in parallel. I'm not sure if things are going to go up or down. I could think about what the probability of those things are, and that's going to determine the balance of my portfolio on stocks and bonds, ones which bearish on equities, one which is bullish on equities. So so there's all there's lots of other different frameworks for thinking through this, but that would be one of the ways that you could think about those problems. That's such a great insight. And using the example, it's obviously very pertinent for everybody right now dealing with coronavirus to think through and really apply some of these decision-making criterion and and to demonstrate that the world really is incredibly uncertain and and there's lots of hidden information and it's it's really hard to make decisions. You know, Austin, that was a great question. Thanks for thanks for throwing that one in there. And just for your sake and everything, I mean, you know, we're not saying that we're not trying to make a stance here, right? We're just looking at the current world and how decision making can be can be done when we're faced with this kind of uncertainty. But I, I think it does it really dovetails too into talking about bias, right? Because un- unfortunately in, in the world we live in right now, it feels like I mean, given the the going back to school example, right? Like a lot of the people that are planning deep flags that actually have the power to impact lives are making these decisions based on either political bias or bias they may not be aware of. And, and it seems like a lot of these decisions are kind of based on just, you know, bias in general. So I, I know one of the other things you discuss in how to decide is, you know, how do we identify these biases? And I want to dig into that, but then also how do we dismantle them so that we know when we're making these high impact decisions, we're not looking through the lens of bias. We're looking through the lens of fact and, and, you know, also following the three steps that you kind of laid out there previously. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, I think, I think that part of the problem, and th- this is general, but it, it speaks to what you're talking about is that once we formed an opinion, once we've made a decision, we tend to interpret the world to fit with the decision or the opinion that we have stated. In other words, we're, we're sort of trying to certify our beliefs all the time. And when we make a decision, it sort of becomes part of like our identity, our, our belief system. So if it turns out that information reveals itself later, that may suggest that the decision that we made isn't good. And I want to clarify what I mean by good. 
that you would have made a decision if you had the knowledge that you had now at the time. So I want to just make that clear because obviously we're all making decisions where there's going to be stuff that reveals itself later that we wish we had known beforehand, but we don't know it beforehand. So first of all, get comfortable with that and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. In general, we're kind of not comfortable with that. So what happens when the information appears in the world that would suggest that you might want to reverse course? This is part of the reason why I talk about really prioritizing reversibility because it allows you, I think, to be thinking about the decision not as an identity choice, but as this is sort of the best thing I can do at this moment. And I'm purposely trying to build in the, the ability to reverse course because I recognize that I'm, I'm at an information deficit. But how, how can we think about how to improve the way that we think about that information as it comes in the future? Well, before you actually do the decision, really think about what are the implications? What are you thinking that the different outcomes are? What, do you, what are the implications and explicitly state these of what the states of the world might be in the future? What of those would cause you to sort of stick with your decision versus what of those might cause you to reverse course and really do that in advance so that you've got these signposts set up for yourself of if this were to occur in the world, I would actually change course. The reason why you really need to do that is that once we've got a belief and and part of that is we've made a decision, which is now a stated opinion and our, our opinions are part of our beliefs, we tend that tends to dig a trench so that when new information appears in the world, instead of looking at it objectively, we'll tend to pull it down into the trench with us. In other words, we'll, we'll interpret it to our favor to support the decision that we already made. But by doing these things in advance and thinking about the decision in the sense of, I wanna figure out what could happen in the world that would make me change my mind. And having that as a framework, that helps you to sort of loosen up those, you know, sort of make the trench a little bit shallower. It makes it a little bit easier to climb out of it. So if we went back to the school decision, one of the things that we could think about with that would be, we're going to open schools, but what are the number of infections that we would tolerate within the school before we would reverse course? And think about that well in advance and and literally write that number down. And that's something that we can do in general in in our decision-making. So, you know, if you have, for example, uh, a particular model of the world in terms of your investment strategy. So we know that there are lots of different models, like there are people who are value investors or trend followers or their growth, either investing in growth stocks or whatever it might be. Uh, Those are really just models of of your decisions. And so when you decide on, on a model like that, it's really helpful to think, what would be the signals in the world which would cause me to change my mind or cause me to alter my model and do that? really early in the process so that you're not doing it as the information confronts you because you've already thought about it in advance. And I think that that's actually incredibly helpful for that piece. In terms of sort of what I would consider the politicization of information, which has become, you know, obviously very problematic, where people aren't thinking about information on its own, they're essentially incorporating, they're thinking about what their political identity is, and then when someone who is a proxy for, for that political identity is speaking, they sort of cease to evaluate the information and they take it as literally just sort of a signal of their identity. So I think that in June, there was a study that showed that Republicans were 12 times as likely to not wear masks 
as Democrats. Now, I want to be clear that this is not a Republican-Democrat problem. This is an everybody problem because Democrats also signal things all the time that cause Democrats to do things where they haven't necessarily thought through the information either. This is this is an equal opportunity problem. I just want to make that clear. Uh, sure. This example just has to do with the behavior of, of Republicans. So the interesting thing about masks, if we think, remember, I was talking about like sort of what's the impact of the decision. So you, you have a, a decision between wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And we can think this through, right? What What's the impact of not wearing a mask? I think it's that you're uncomfortable. And if you haven't brushed your teeth, you're smelling your bad breath. And if it's hot out, you may be slightly uncomfortable. Like it may be a little bit hotter under that mask. I'm trying to think of other really big downside impacts to wearing a mask, but I'm hard pressed to find one. But when we think about the upside of wearing a mask, well, we don't really know what it is. The experts say we don't know, but we know that it's good. In other words, we don't have certainty about what the positives are to that decision, but we know that it does help stem the spread. We know from other countries that have strong mask wearing policies that that it, it helps control the virus, even if we don't know by how much. It's just better. So this is a really good example of the, the this kind of framework that you can think through when you're uncertain. You can sort of just look and say outside of let, let me just sort of put the identity issue aside and who's saying it. And let me actually examine the decision to think about what the difference is between the downside potential and the upside potential of the decision is. And in this particular case, what we find out is there's basically no downside, but there's lots of potential upside, even if we're not certain about the upside. And that's actually what we call a free roll. And a free roll is just when there's kind of nothing to lose, but a lot to gain would be what a free roll is called. It comes from the 1950s and casinos. They would give people a free roll of nickels to go play the slot machines to kind of get started. One of the arguments that I've heard about wearing masks is, well, I'm not going to wear masks because you can't tell me how effective they are. And what I'm trying to say is if you're thinking through this with through a really clear decision framework, what you realize is it doesn't matter that you can't tell me how effective they are. Because what I do have a lot of clarity about is what the downside is, which is almost nothing, right? I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable because mm-hmm. I have a mask on my face. So, so therefore, that's something that we should just go ahead and do. And there's all sorts of examples of free roles in like real life you know, uh, applying to a college that's a reach would be a free roll. You don't really, you don't really think you're going to get in, but nothing bad is really going to come from it. Right. So uh, asking someone out on a first date, they might say, no, who cares? But I think that this is generally a problem. And so you can, you can take something like that and you can look at how much identity has gotten wrapped into it. And what you can see is that identity becomes a really big problem in terms of our ability to actually process information in a rational way, in a logical way. And again, I just want to make it clear, this is a human problem. This is not, I'm, I'm not saying that Republicans are special in this way. Human beings are special in this way. Sure. You know, free rolls are great, actually. It's funny. We look at that when we're uh, reaching out to guests. I think even when we first reached out to you, it's like, there's no downside. You're just going to either ignore us or tell us no. Might as well ask everybody and their mom that we want to talk to. Yeah. So that's a really good example of a free roll as well. And what's interesting is a lot of people won't reach out in that situation because they're like, oh, I don't I think there's a really low chance you're going to say yes. So, uh, you know, it's like, okay, who cares? So one of the ways that you can identify free rolls, and this is a really good framework for figuring out how to sort of speed up, like, you know, as they say, go fast and break things. Just ask yourself if the worst case happens, like if the worst thing happens, am I worse off than I was before? And in the case of reaching out to a long shot guest, 
if they don't reply, I don't think you're worse off than you were before. But if they reply, you've got an awesome guest on your show. Yeah, that's such a great framework. And, and I mean, it's funny because even you, you brought up a, a couple really good points talking earlier about just the decision making process and the whole idea of putting identity aside and just looking at what's the upside of this behavior, what's the downside of this behavior. And regardless of what context you put it in, if a behavior has almost no downside and a potentially really high upside, it's just like it's a it's a positive expected value decision, right? So you should make it. And that's a great way to kind of think about applying poker knowledge to any decision process. But uh, you you said something maybe a few minutes ago that to me is maybe the most one of the most insightful things I think you've said in this whole conversation, which is which has been filled with insights is this notion of what signal or what threshold or what data point will cause you to change your model of reality or change your opinion about a topic. And if if you're not willing to ask yourself that and commit to it on the front end, then you're really falling into a major trap of, of all kinds of identity and bias and bad thinking really clouding your 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 judgment and your decision making and and to me that's that's a really powerful question to ask yourself and to ask other people in any situation is what would cause you to change your opinion what data what information because if no data or no information will cause you to change your opinion and i'm not talking about masks i'm not talking about coronavirus i'm not talking about poker hands i'm not talking about anything i'm talking about everything your opinion should always be willing to change if the data changes and I feel like for many, many people I know, the answer is no amount of data would cause me to change my perspective. I think that that's really true. I mean, I think even if it's even if it's a question of whether the earth is round, which is something that I believe quite deeply, I can think of exactly the data that would come to me that would make me change my mind. Now, I, I think that's very low probability to ever cross my path, but I'm quite aware of what it might be. I, I think that this is something that really comes through in poker. Because when I'm playing poker, obviously, I can't see your cards. And what I'm really doing is building models of my opponent, right? That, that's what I'm doing all the time. And that model of my opponent, um, I'm kind of using for two purposes. One is I can only see your behavior in terms of trying to figure out what your whole cards are. So I have to build a pretty good model of you to figure out how your behavior might map onto a variety of different hands that you might be holding, you know, which I can't see. I'm then looping that back and saying, given the hand that I think you might be holding, how do I expect that you would behave in the future? Meaning for Austin, I may believe that if, if he had a uh, top pair and I raised him, that he was not the type of player who would fold in that situation. But maybe I think that Matt would fold in that situation. So I have to think about, you know, two people looking at the exact same hand of poker would react to those hands very differently. So this is all this model building that I'm doing that I'm then using to, to make forecasts about what I what I think you're going to do in, in the future. That's kind of simply what you're doing at the poker table. So those are essentially those forecasts that I'm creating or those things that I'm thinking about that model essentially are those signposts that would cause me to change my mind. So what I'm thinking is kind of in the negative space, right? I think that Matt has this particular type of hand so if I raise him, he should fold. But if you don't fold, there are two things that I could be thinking about. One is that I've got your hand wrong and you actually have a stronger hand than I thought. The other is that you have the hand I thought, but you're perceiving that hand differently than I predicted. 
So I have to now think about those hope. Maybe you show me your hand at the end and I can actually find out an answer, but I have to now I immediately, because you did not act in the way that I expected, which was my signpost. I have to now start going back into my model and adjusting my model. So if you don't do that in poker, you will lose all your money because you're, you're never going to, you know, you're going to think, oh, this player is this type of player. And then you're not going to notice that that's not how they are. Uh, because you're just going to be sort of rejecting the evidence that's right before your eyes and ears and and just say, no, I know that I was right and continue along your merry way. A lot of poker players do that, you know, and, and particularly I experienced that a lot as a, as a female player because people would have views of me as kind of a woman and then they would sort of stick to their view of me that I was a bad player, that I wasn't going to bluff a lot. For example, that, you know, I wasn't going to be particularly creative in my play. And despite the evidence that was coming their way, that perhaps their model of me was poor, they would generally be pretty sticky in their model with me. So that was something that I I was sort of on the good end of quite a bit. So it's really important to bring that into your decision making in general. When you make a decision, really think about what are the things that could be true in the future that would tell me that I need to start reexamining my model. And if you're not doing that, it's going to be very likely that you are going to be too slow to react to changes in the world. Such a great insight. And that that brings me back to something you touched on earlier, and we've started to share some of these themes. But I'd be really curious to to explore the topic a little bit more of, of how we start to build a, a vocabulary or a shared framework for discussing our thinking, discussing our decision making and, and working in conjunction with other people to to make better decisions. Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good question. So one of the things that I I go pretty deeply into in the book is how how to actually create good conversations that are going to improve your decision making. And so the, the first thing that I really try to get people to understand is that you have to be meaning the same thing when you speak. So it's not just that you have to have a shared vocabulary, it's that you need to know what those words mean. And the reason for that, and then I'll, I'll give you the example of, of why that is, but of an example of how that goes wrong, is that really what we're trying to do when we're making group decisions is to access the different perspectives that are living in, in, in the group. So we know the aphorism, two heads are better than one. That's because when we bring two heads together, what we think is happening is that those those two people have different perspectives on the situation. It's not just that they may hold different facts in their possession, which would be really good to surface, but even if they were looking at the same facts, they may come to very different conclusions about those facts because data are not truth, right? Whenever we get data, we're just modeling that data to try to figure out what we think the appropriate model of the world is, and then we're sort of behaving accordingly. The problem is that that intuition that we have that two heads are better than one just really doesn't express itself generally when you look at group decision making. So we've all heard of like groupthink and bandwagoning where people just jump on the bandwagon. We know that groups sort of coalesce around consensus too often. And the part of the problem is that there's all sorts of different ways in which we hide disagreement from each other. So first of all, just like in terms of the science, super, super simple a beautiful, elegant study that shows that groups have a lot of problems in the way that they make decisions comes from Richard Zeckhauser and Dan Levy over at Harvard. They did the simplest thing. They took a room full of students, like a class, and they asked the class, you know, questions as you do in the class where you're, where you're asking questions and they're taking a poll of the students. 
And so for, for one group of students, they had the students raise their hand in answer to the question. So they, you know, put up some question that had some answer like A, B, or C, and they'd have people rate, how many people think it's A, how many people think it's B, how many people think it's C. And what they found was that when you, when you had the hand raising exercise, in other words, this was happening in public, super majorities formed, meaning like the majority of the class would kind of settle in on one of the answers. But they then took another group of students and they gave them clickers. So these were private to them and they had them answer by clicker. And when they answered by clicker, the supermajorities completely disappeared. So what this tells us is that we have a problem with, with group discussion because we end up with this appearance of consensus. But it turns out that if you could somehow get into somebody's private mind, you would find out that that consensus didn't really exist. It just appeared to exist. So that we, let's just start there at that problem. So part of the way to solve this is to create more precision in the way that we talk to each other and a shared sense of how, how you're supposed to actually walk through a decision in order to surface the different opinions that live in the heads of the people in, in the group. So now I can, I can give you an example. There was a really great survey done by Michael Mobison and Andrew Mobison. And it was from Phil Tetlock, who's written Super Forecasting, talks a lot about these kind of, you know, these natural language terms that we use to describe probabilities, things like likely and real possibility and maybe and sometimes and slam dunk and always and never. So these are all words that are implying some sort of probability. And we use them a lot when we talk to each other. Like if we were talking about some sort of tactic, maybe that we wanted to implement, you know, you, you might say to me, oh, well, I think it has a real possibility of succeeding. And then I nod back to you in agreement. So Phil said that, you know, the problem with these words are that, first of all, they have very broad meaning. So not everybody sort of means the same thing by them. And second of all, they sort of let you get out of it. So, you know, when you say, well, I and it was a real possibility, like, because there's no precision to it, it kind of doesn't allow you to close any feedback loops. So Michael Mobison and Andrew Mobison decided to do a survey. And there's like 20 natural language terms. The survey is in my book great thing to do as a team exercise. And he just surveyed people and said, you know, when you're thinking about one of these words, what do you think the probability is that something is going to happen in the future for you to use this word? So if I say this, this tactic has a real possibility of working, what does that mean? What's the likelihood that it actually works? And speak precisely, please, in percentages. So they had people fill out this survey and it turns out that people just don't agree at all on what these terms actually mean when you actually ask them to speak with precision. Surprisingly, people don't agree on what always and never means. That's pretty surprising. So always means somewhere between 95 and 100% of the time, depending on who you ask. And never, I think, might be between 0 and 10% of the time. I may have that reversed. But here's a really surprising one, real possibility. The biggest range I've ever gotten in doing this exercise was 16% to 81%. So think about what that's doing to your group discussions. People are saying things like, I think this is a real possibility, and people are nodding in agreement. And I haven't ever uncovered that Matt, who's nodding at me in agreement, actually thinks that means like 20% of the time. And what I think is that it means 65% of the time. And we go along our merry way believing that we have agreed because I never actually figured out how are we supposed to talk to each other 
in order to find out where we have dispersion. And if you hide the dispersion, you can't have a good group process because you're not actually getting all that good stuff that comes from having more people involved in the decision, which is really different perspectives and different knowledge. I don't know. I think I can tell you that never happens to me. Ah, very funny. <laughs> no, but extremely powerful points. And I think it's just, it's crazy when, when you ask people to put those percentages behind it, the results you get and just kind of the lack the realization that we're really not even speaking the same language most of the time. No. So, so one of the nice things about this exercise, and again, it's, it's in how to decide is that I get teams to do the exercise. Right. And then they find out, Oh my gosh, like, I can't even believe like, you know, Austin over here thought that meant, you know, 25%. What? Like I thought it was 50. So I sort of exposed to them that they actually aren't speaking the same language. And then, and then I tell them, well, here's the good news. Everybody on the team now has a list for themselves. When you feel like you want to say real possibility, please just go refer to your list and say what the percentage is that, that you have next to real possibility instead of using that term. Likewise, when we think about sort of a, a shared understanding of what process is, if I say real possibility to you, you should say to me, well, what do you mean by that? What do you think? The pro could you give me a probability? And what this allows us to do is actually surface where we disagree. And then you have this am these amazing conversations that occur. Because I think that part of the problem is that, first of all, humans like to agree for the same reason that when I make a decision or I have a belief and new information comes in in the future that maybe says that I should change that belief, I don't because I'm really trying to protect my identity. I also think that naturally, that when I'm talking to other people, that, the, that really what I'm trying to get them to do is certify my beliefs. In other words, I, I want agreement. And so we tend to be lingering in the agreement as opposed to surfacing the disagreement, which is what is actually really interesting. The fact that we all agree that the earth is round is kind of uninteresting. Why, but why should we talk about it? We should, we should actually find out all the places that we disagree. And yet I'm sure if you think about meetings that you've had in the past, you immediately realize that it's a lot of like, I think that people should be wearing masks and I tell you why. And then you say, oh, I completely agree with you. And let me also give my five minute dissertation on why I think that's correct. And then Matt says, oh, I also agree. And let me give my five minutes. And, you know, in 15 minutes into the meeting, we've all spent a whole bunch of time about something that is non-controversial, at least within our group, right? Mm -hmm. That we all happen to agree on. And we're not instead talking about, well, what do you think about whether it's safe even with a mask on to go into a grocery store? And we may have there a lot of dispersion around that, but we haven't actually discussed that because we're lingering on the stuff that makes us feel good where we all agree and we can all we can all signal to each other that we're part of a group. And this is really kind of in a in a like a microcosm of the problem with the political identity stuff that's been happening in terms of that driving your beliefs as well. Yeah, it's funny. I th I think that happens a lot. Not only, you know, in work situations where you're kind of justifying the decisions you've made or the process you're following, but a lot of times when you're hanging out with people in a social setting and something that can be controversial comes up, you all agree. It's like you spend so much time sitting there patting each other on the back, basically reaffirming your own decisions, you know, as opposed to maybe seeking points of maybe not like intentional controversy, but points of growth. I mean, I think, you know, I love the analogy of a trench, but in my mind, there's nothing more dangerous than a deep trench and being able to, like, I always think that the, 
the biggest superpower someone can have, especially in their adult life and as they get older, is the willingness and the ability to let go of a long hill belief. Absolutely. Well, you see here, we're doing it. I couldn't. Well, based on new information, right? Yeah. I, guess, I guess I should clarify. Not not just just change your belief because you want to. Well, yeah, you don't want the, to randomly change your beliefs, but the the open mindedness to corrective information. So I, I think correct. that that I think I want to linger on that for a second, not because we agree, but I think because there's actually value. <laughs> so if we were to think about the decision process, right? We we can think about sort of at the tail end of the process, you've got certain options that you're considering. And when you choose an option, what you've chosen is the set of possible futures that could unfold. So for any given option, there's different ways that that, that, that could turn out. And we, the first thing we want to do when we're thinking about options is identify what those possibilities are. And then once we've identified what those possibilities are, we want to think about what the likelihood of those different things are. You know, very simple. If I if I go if I go through a red light, I could think about what's the probability I get in an accident, what's the probability I get a ticket. What's the probability I go through fine and nothing happens to me? And we could think about what those futures are. If I'm thinking about hiring a job candidate, I could say, you know, let's say that I'm particularly interested in uh, concerned about turnover. I could say, what I want to think about one outcome would be there. They leave within a year. Another outcome could be they leave between a year and two years. And another outcome could be they stay beyond that. And then I could think about a probability for each of those possibilities. So but what's really important to think about is that, you know, when you choose an option, there's all these different ways that it could turn out. But what tells you which way you observe on that particular time is due to luck. So if there's some outcome that's going to occur 5% of the time, what that means just definitely, you know, it's axiomatic is that it's going to happen 5% of the time. And But the thing is that you don't know which 5% you're going to observe, you know, when you're going to see that 5%. So on any given time that you make that decision that has, say, a bad outcome 5% of the time, you could get a bad outcome on that time and you don't have any control over it. That's the influence of luck. So the way I think about luck is luck is something that you need to see clearly, but you can't actually do much about. You need to see it clearly because you need to actually know what the possibilities are and what the probabilities of the, are as close as possible in order to make a good decision. I'm actually interested in this particular case and what's happening prior to that. So essentially what's happening is that our beliefs are informing everything about the decision. So our beliefs inform what our goals are, what our values are. Our beliefs inform what we think our options are. Our beliefs inform what resources we believe we have to put toward those options. And frankly, it's our beliefs that tell us what we think the possible outcomes are and what we think the probability of those outcomes, of each of those outcomes is. And that's all driven by our beliefs. So here's the problem. So we can think about this is where we get the intervention of imperfect information. Because when we think about what we know versus what we don't know, it's like what we know could fit on the head of a pin. And what we don't know is like the size of the universe. Now, the issue is that our beliefs really, if you think about it, are the foundation of all of our decisions because they're informing everything that come, you know, everything about the decision. So our decision making house is like built on this foundation. And that foundation has two problems with it. One is that there are inaccuracies in the foundation, in that foundation. There are some of the things that we believe, in fact, many of them are not really perfectly true. They, they tend not to be perfectly false either. They're generally somewhere in between. But we can think about those as cracks in the foundation. Then the other problem that I just said is that the, the foundation is flimsy. 
what we know compared to the knowable, you know, what there is to know about the world is quite small. And so what we'd really like to be doing is broadening that foundation as well to beef it up. So our decision-making house is just kind of sitting on this weak foundation. So really, if you think about it, the biggest thing that you want to do as a decision maker is to improve that foundation. In other words, improve the quality and the breadth of your beliefs. The only way you can do that is to go search around in the universe of stuff that you don't know and collide with both new information and corrective information. Now, some of that, you know, you could Google, but much of that information is going to live in other people's heads. So it becomes imperative to be interacting with people who, who may hold different views than you, A, and B, interact with them in a way where they would be willing to express those views to you. And then you have to remain open-minded to them. Because when we think about things like confirmation bias, for example, where we're really interacting with the world in a way that's seeking out confirmation of our, our of the things we already believe that's a walking through the universe of stuff we don't know problem which is that we're not taking a random walk through it we're specifically walking into the little sections of it and looking around in the parts that already agree with us and how on earth is that going to help the foundation of your decisions it's going to reinforce the inaccuracies in it and it's certainly not going to broaden your knowledge because they're repeating back to you things that you already believe and I think what's interesting about it is that if I say to people, would you like to become a better decision maker over time? They'll say, yes, I, I've yet to meet somebody who says no to that. Then I say, well, okay, so let me just ask you hypothetically, in order to improve your decision making over time, could you imagine that you may have to find out that some decisions that you've made in the past have been poor? And they say, yes. And I say, could you imagine that you need to learn a bunch of new stuff? Yes. Could you imagine that you're going to have to find out that some belief that you hold pretty dearly, maybe you need to recalibrate in some way? And they'll say, yes, they'll say that all it, sort of in theory, they'll recognize that that's true. But in practice, when they're actually interacting with the information in the moment that they collide with that stuff that's corrective, they either don't see it, they don't seek it out, or they reject it altogether. And they sort of pull, as I say, pull it down into the trench and just sort of like say, well, actually, I don't think that that's what that means at all. And then they'll do some interesting narrative spinning and there you go. So this idea of like, how are you thinking about how do I change my mind? How do I find that information that's going to help me reverse my beliefs? This literally, it's the key. If you don't do that, you can't improve your decision making. So it's like everything that you need to be doing has to be directed around that. Yeah, I mean, that is that is such a critical foundational element of of all of this and and you did such an incredible job just bringing this whole conversation together into really the synthesis of of how you can think about decision making how you can think about investigating your own biases how to start to become someone who's trying to improve their thought process instead of just constantly feel validated and feel like they're right and 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 not really have the courage to investigate their own thinking. Annie, for, for somebody who wants to start putting this into practice in some way, what is one simple action item or starting point that they can execute on to, to take a leap into this, into this broader journey? I would say, yeah. So the single most important thing that I think that people can do is start figuring out how to actually elicit people's other people's true opinions. So 
let me talk about it in a one-on-one basis and then how you might actually implement this into a team setting. Generally, the way that people elicit feedback goes awry. And the reason it goes awry is that usually when I offer you my opinion first about the thing that I'm trying to get feedback, what I've done is put you in a position where if you have a different opinion, you have to actually publicly disagree with me. So let let me explain what I mean. If I were thinking about a poker hand, for example, the way that most people ask about poker hands is this person raised in front of me and I'll tell you some facts about that person in the situation. I'll say this person raised in front of me and then I look down at ace queen and I raised, what do you think I should have done? Now the problem is that the feedback I'm trying to elicit from you, which is what should my action have been, I have just now told you what I I actually did. So if you think that I shouldn't have raised, I've actually put you kind of in a bad position, at least as it comes to these cognitive biases, because now you have to disagree with me if you you actually do disagree with me. So what's going to happen there is generally that either you're going to continue to disagree with me, but then not actually say so, because maybe you don't want to just embarrass me or maybe you don't want to embarrass yourself because you think I'm more of an expert than you are. That could be one thing that happens. Another is that while I'm speaking and I say, so I raised, what do you think I should do? Your opinion could shift without you knowing it. This is particularly if I'm in a leadership position or if I'm, if you're perceived as a subject matter expert or if I'm for some reason, I, you feel like I have higher status than you do. So your opinion may bend toward mine. So that is another thing that could happen. The third thing is that if you do disagree with me, you'll tend to put it in bubble wrap. Well, yeah, no, I think raising is pretty good there. But like, uh, did you think about this other thing? Like as, as an example, and we can think about this as we're thinking about eliciting feedback on anything, right? I think Forrest Gump was a horrible movie. What do you think? We're on a hiring committee and we're looking at two candidates, right? And I'm like, I think Susan's a superstar. What do you think? I mean, in all these ways, we sort of offer our own opinion first. And and it's and what we're doing is kind of infecting the other person with our beliefs. So the simplest thing that you could do, like the biggest change you could make in your life is when you're trying to get somebody else's opinion, don't offer them yours first. So if I, I what I want to do is say to you, the person raised in front of me, I had ace queen, what do you think I should do? And if you say to me, well, what did you do? Which is normally the question that you get back. You know, hey, we just interviewed those two candidates. Like, which one do you like better? People will say, well, what do you think of them? And they're doing that because they want to make sure you're on the same page, but you're specifically trying to find out if you're not. So by doing this, I allow you to express your true opinion. And then now I can actually find out, oh, actually, Matt thinks I should have just called there. So let me explore that. Let me find out why Matt thinks that before I offer you any of my own thoughts. This is going to help me to collide with more of that universe that I want to be interacting with in terms of knowledge. Now, how do you actually implement that into a team? That becomes harder because if Austin, Matt, and Annie are having a conversation and I do this in the way that I speak to Matt, now when Matt expresses his opinion, obviously he's now infected Austin. So I want to avoid that. And so this is now the second biggest thing that you could do in your life is think about the feedback that you're trying to get from your team prior to going in and having a meeting on the team and make sure that you elicit it from each team member independently. In other words, in a way that the other team, that the other team members cannot see initially. So, you know, as an example, if you're, if you're just thinking, if you're on a hiring committee and 
four people have just interviewed the two candidates. Figure out what what are the things that matter to you in terms of the candidates. So it may be, you know, of the candidates we're going to see, where does this candidate sit on a scale of zero to 10 compared to that reference group? Or you might say like on a scale of zero to five, how autonomous do I think this individual will be, right? We, we can think about what those are. We could, a, another thing that we could do is like, as we could be doing a pre-mortem, which is just thinking about the ways things can go wrong in the future. And I could do this as the, the feedback that I'm trying to elicit. In any case, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about what that feedback is. And then what I do is we all interview the two candidates and then we literally don't talk, right? I, I send this form out Everybody replies to the form, not rep- independently. I collate all of that together, and then I reveal it to the group before we get into the meeting. And what we find out is that in the universe of candidates that we're going to see, Annie thinks the person was an eight. Matt thinks they were a six. And you know maybe Austin thinks they were a five. And now we find out, oh, we actually have a pretty big spread on this. Like Now this is what we should discuss. And what you're going to find out when you do that kind of pre-work is a couple of great things come out of it. The first is you're going to find out there's more dispersion than you think, which is a good thing. The second thing is you're going to find out that there's areas of agreement. Also a good thing. When you go into the meeting now, everybody's going to know what you need to talk about, which is we all agree on this. Let's actually talk about the areas of dispersion. And now people can sort of give their rationales, not in order to convince other people of their point of view, but just to express them about why they think that all these different things are true. In that process, not only do you collide with more of these different perspectives, but in having people actually talk about why they believe these things that are different than other people in the room, the whole group becomes more educated. They learn more facts. They get access to different ways of thinking about problems. They may have access to different data. Somebody else could be bringing different data to bear than than you did on the problem and so on and so forth. And that, if that's all that you did was change that thing about the way that you interact with other people, you would be so much better off because you would constantly be learning and growing from other people, which is really what you're trying to do. Well, Annie, I know we could go on and talk about decision making and all of these strategies for, for hours and hours, but this has been an incredible conversation, such, such great insights, so many powerful and applicable ways to improve our own decision making for listeners who want to find the book, who want to find out more about you and your work, what is the best place for them to do that online? Oh, it's, you can go to AnnieDuke.com. There's a contact form there, so you can email me there. There's links if you want to hire me for stuff. There's a newsletter link there. You know, obviously, I, like, I do consulting and speaking and, and whatnot. But there's also a newsletter link there. You can find out how to buy the books there. So that, you know, how to decide and thinking and bets. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm actually pretty active on Twitter, and that's at Annie Duke. Uh, and I would say those are probably the two best ways to get in touch with me. You can buy my books on The Usual Suspects. Well, Annie, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all of this wisdom. It was great to have you back on here, and an even better conversation where we really got into tons of great insights about better decision-making. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. 
I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.